Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. Here, he's going to be further discussing what we began in episode 183, which is Isaac and Gerar in Genesis 26. We hope you enjoy listening in on these observations on this text, and as always, thank you so much for listening. We are in Genesis 26, and that's Isaac and Gerar. We've looked at how that there's a deep structure in the Bible of a son coming into a strange place and acquiring the kingdom and then returning to his father. And, of course, that deep structure is fulfilled in the work of our Lord. I want to say just a little bit about, because it's going to come up again today, what we call these deep structures, why they exist. And the reason they exist is because human beings are images of God. And so the human life cannot help but imitate and reveal aspects of God's life. And God is consistent, human beings are consistent. God's actions in history are consistent. The result is the same kinds of things happen over and over again, but not in some merely repetitious fashion. History is like a spiral where we move through the same kinds of experiences over and over again, but we learn more each time. So there's growth and development in history. But because God is three persons, three kinds of persons, you'll see those three kinds of persons together in human society. We'll see it in this passage. I don't think we'll get to it today. But we'll see the father, Abimelech, my father king, and his commander of the host, and his counselor. The father, commander of the host, and a counselor. That's how their society is set up. Father, son, and a spirit. It just works that way. Human beings cannot help but be the images of God because that's what they are. You can't stop being. Theologians argue about whether we lost the image of God when we fell, or whether the image of God is perverted in us. The best answer to that kind of a question is to say that human beings simply are the image of God. It can't be lost. It can't be perverted. It's just what you are. It's the likeness of God which we increasingly lose or we grow into more like God or we pervert the likeness of God. But no matter where you are, even in hell, Adolf Hitler is the image of God just as much as I am. He's totally ruined his life but he doesn't cease to be a human being. A human being is, by definition, an image of God. And so everything that Hitler does and thinks in hell is a copy of something in God, only it's perverted. It's for that reason that you find that the Bible history is totally typological, that the things that happen in Bible history in various ways, over and over again, in different times and seasons, keep showing us aspects of what God is going to do when he sends Jesus. Because it really can't be any other way. And so we were looking at the fact that Isaac, who is the son, and who has already been sacrificed and brought to life again, is now 
sacrificed and brought to life again in another way. And I think we'll get to it today. We'll see that all of this is predicted to Abraham. Abraham sends seven lambs to Abimelech in exchange for water. Well, now really this is what's happening here. Isaac is the seven lambs that goes into Abimelech's country and is the exchange for the wells. Isaac's suffering here is filling out what it means to be sent off into the strange land to suffer and then get the bride and get a kingdom and come back. So, that's the overall structure. Last time we looked at the first of three stories in Genesis 26. Genesis 26 has three matching stories. The first story is a famine, so now Isaac is like those original seven ewe lambs, which we'll look at today. He's sent down, well, we may not get through today, but he's sent down into the land of Gerar. And Yahweh meets with him and says, Dwell there, and I will give you all these lands, and I will bless the nations through you. Now, all that's going to happen in this chapter. First of all, he's going to start digging a bunch of wells. He's going to take dominion over several different lands. Of course, he has to keep moving, but he's still doing that. And then at the end of the chapter, the Gentiles are blessed through it. So there's an immediate fulfillment of the prophecy. Remember, the prophecies in the Bible always have a near and a far fulfillment. And the near fulfillment is for the purpose of assuring us that God will eventually do the far fulfillment. When we see him do the little fulfillment in the near future, we say, okay, we know he means business. The eventual far fulfillment will take place. So, this promise here, I will multiply you. I will bless you. All these things happen in this chapter. He bless, he gets all this money, and he becomes great and greater and great, we're going to see. And then Abimelech comes and says, you become more numerous than we can stand. He's been multiplied. That's the promise. And then he takes dominion over these lands by digging these wells. And then all the nations of the earth, well, at least in this chapter, symbolically, all the nations of the world come to him and make covenant with him. When Abimelech and Ahazat and Phicol come and make covenant with him. So it's all fulfilled right here. That's the first story, and as the story continues, we look at God has told Isaac, reminded him about Abraham, and so Isaac does just what Abraham did and tells Abimelech that Rebekah is his sister, doesn't bother to say that he's his wife, and Abimelech finds out about it and typically tries to blame Isaac for doing something wrong when Isaac didn't do anything wrong. And Abimelech protects him, and that's important to notice. When Abimelech finds out what's going on, he does the right thing. The earlier Abimelech did too. Initially he made mistakes, but he does the right thing in the crunch. Whoever touches this man dying, he shall die. Right out of the Garden of Eden language. Isaac is set up as forbidden fruit. Now we come to the second story in the chapter. Chapter 26, 12, 22. And we have a nice inclusio here. We look for inclusios. Something at the beginning of a passage and shows up back at the end of a passage. And if the passage seems to have one story arc, and it feels like it's one narrative with a beginning and an end, and we find the same words at the beginning as at the end, then we can be fairly confident that we have a pericope. That's what we call it, peri, something that's around. A pericope 
kind of like a paragraph or maybe a slightly larger one. You have a beginning and an end and a storyline that actually has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It ends somewhere. Now look at this one. Verse 12. I'm reading from our translation. Yitzhak sowed in that land and reaped in that year a hundred measures. Thus did Yahweh bless him. And then we have this story. He becomes great. The Philistines fight with him. They send him away and he starts moving away. He digs wells and they fight with him. He digs a well and they fight with him. And he finally comes to a place and digs a well and they don't fight with him. And then, verse 22, the last sentence. Indeed, now Yahweh has made space for us so that we may bear fruit in the land. That's where it ends. Yahweh blesses him. Then we have a story that moves from initial blessing to conflict to final blessing, and then the word Yahweh shows up again. The word Yahweh doesn't show up anywhere else in the story. So the inclusio is Yahweh and Yahweh, and in the middle we have the story, one story, that ends. Now, we have another one. Where do we go to next? Verse 23. He went up from there to Beersheba. Now we look to the end. Let's see. Does that show up again? Verse 33. So he called it Shiva. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba until this day. And that's the end of the story. So we have an inclusio around the word Beersheba. He goes to Beersheba. God appears to him. Then Abimelech comes to him. And while they're there, they're digging a well, and the well gets dug, and then it's called Beersheba. So we have the beginning, which is coming to Beersheba. They start to dig a well. Abimelech comes while they're digging a well, and then he leaves. They finish digging the well, and it's Beersheba. So that we can know that this is a pericope. It's one package, one paragraph. And it's the third in this story. The first one, coming into Gerar, and the story with Rebecca. The second one, digging the wells. The third one, at Beersheba, when Abimelech comes. And all three of these are marked out with the idea of blessing. Look back at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 26. The first story, the three stories, begins this way. God is seen by him, Yahweh is seen by him. And in verse 3 it says, Sojourn in this land, I will be with you and give you blessing. For to you and to your seed, I will give all these lands and fulfill the sworn oath that I swore to Abraham your father, and I will give your seed many like the stars of the heavens, and to your seed I will give all these lands and all the nations of the earth shall enjoy blessing through your seed. Now if you look back a couple of pages in your notes, you'll find that that sentence is a chiasm, and it begins and ends with blessing. That's the first story. Go on down there. I'll bless you. I'll give you all this stuff. I'll bless you. Then we have the white story. So that's the story. The second part of the chapter, verses 12 to 22. Verse 12 starts off. Yes, I sowed in that land, reap that year a hundred measures. Yahweh bless it. It ends. Yahweh has made space for us. The word bless doesn't occur there, but it's the same idea. Bless begin, bless end. So the first story we have at least one sentence that begins and ends with blessing. The second story is mapped out. God blesses. Bunch of events, God blesses. The third story, the inclusio is quite similar. 
verse 23. Notice this Bible, the paragraph division is wrong. Verse 23, he went up to Beersheba. The space should be before that verse, not after it. I have to disagree with the translator at that point. He went up to Beersheba. Yahweh was seen by him on that night. said, I'm God of Abraham. I will bless you. And then, how does the story end? Well, you come on down as Abimelech leaves. But at the end of verse 29, you are blessed by Yahweh. So, blessing, blessing. Now that is going to tell us something, and I want to make the point now, and we'll be coming back to it. I'm spending a lot of poor time on this chapter than I thought I would, but it's instructive if I can teach you a little bit how to read, study the Bible in the process of spending time on it. Then story one, story A, story B, and story C. This one is about Rebecca. This one's about Wells. This one's about Gentiles. Each one of them, Yahweh, blesses. That's the theme. Same thing here, same thing there. Each one of them nicely packaged up. At the center of the chiasm in this story is, I'm going to fulfill the promises I gave to Abraham. As we're going to see, at the center of the story B is Abraham's well. At the center of story C is a covenant with the Gentiles, which renews the covenant that Abraham had made. So Abraham is alluded to at the center of each one of these. Now, what would you begin to suspect as you see three stories like this? you got three different stories, but they're each one of them is structured the same way. They begin and end pretty much the same way. At the center are three ideas that correlate with each other, specifically Abraham. What would you begin to think you might want to do with these three stories in terms of examining the theology of the passage and seeing what else might be here. What would you maybe do? I'll tell you what I think we want to do. We want to examine whether these are parallel ideas to each other. Whether Rebecca is kind of like a well and that the wells of water are kind of like the Gentiles. That maybe the three stories ought to be laid over on top of each other and we ought to consider that there are parallel ideas. Well, considering the fact that Rebecca was found at a well, and the wives are always found at wells, and the woman is said to be like a well in a number of places, then providing all these wells of water might very well connect up to Rebecca being a central theme in the first story. Maybe. At any rate, that's the kind of thing you want to think about if you're wrestling with the passage. Well, that's enough introductory stuff. We'll go into the passage. Starting in verse 12, I'm going to read verses 12 to 22, and then we'll look into it. I should say this, too. The first two stories occupy the same span of time. Isaac comes into the land, and it says, When he had been there a long time, Abimelech discovers that he's married to Rebekah. So this business about discovering he's married to Rebekah and telling the people to make sure they don't bother him and Rebecca, that span of time is the same span of time as the one we're about to look at. Verse 12, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in that year a hundred measures. That's the first year he's there. They don't know about Rebecca yet. And the stuff we're about to read 
somewhere during this story is this business of discovering who Rebecca is, and I'll tell you when I think it probably is. So now we'll go over it again. This is another parallel, though. Protecting Rebecca, trying to protect the wells, is somewhat of a similar idea. A potential attack on Rebecca by the men of the place is a parallel idea to the men fighting him over the wells. Verses 12-22. Yes, God sowed in that land and reaped in that year a hundred measures, thus Yahweh blessing. The man became great and went on, went on becoming greater until he was exceeding great. If you're not reading from Fox, you probably don't have as much repetition in your translation. Um, English style would say, don't use the word great over and over like that. The Hebrew does, and this is part of the out loud character of the text. The man became great and went on, went on becoming greater, until he was exceeding great. He had herds of sheep and herds of oxen and a large retinue of servants. There are seven statements there. And the Philistines envied him. There's a climax. Verse 12, Isaac sowed and reaped a hundred measures, and Yahweh blessed him. The man became great, one, went on, two, went on becoming greater, three, three, he was exceeding great, four, he had a herds of sheep, five, herds of oxen, six, a large retinue of servants, seven, and the Philistines envied him. He reaped a hundred measures, and Yahweh blessed him. He got the sevenfold blessing, the Philistines envied him. So I'm trying to get you to see the musicality of the text. And all the wells, now we shift the attention to the wells. And the wells, this word wells is going to show up seven times here. The wells, which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, the Philistines stopped up and filled with earth. And Abimelech said to Yisrael, Go away from us, for you have become exceedingly more mighty in number than we. He adds in number because that's the implication of the Hebrew word here. It doesn't mean power so much as multitude. I think that that's probably about the time he discovered who Rebecca was. I think that probably we've moved up in time to about the same event. So Yitzchak went from there. He encamped in the Wadi of Gerar and settled there. I'll tell you what a Wadi is eventually. The next verse is a parenthesis. Yishak had again dug up the wells of water which had been dug in the days of Abraham his father. The Philistines having stopped them up after Abraham's death. And he called them by the names, the same names by which his father had called them. Yishak's servants also dug in the wadi. Now we go back to the fact that we've moved from Gerar proper to the wadi of Gerar. Yishak's servants also dug in the wadi and found there a well of living water. Now the shepherds of Gerar quarreled with the shepherds of Yishak, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Bickering, because they bickered with it. They dug another well, and quarreled also over it. So he called its name Satan. He moved on from there, and dug another well. But they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Open Spaces, and said, Indeed, now Yahweh has made space for us, so that we may bear fruit in the land. And there it stops. That's your inclusive. Now, if you look at your notes, this story is a prophetic interpretation of the Exodus later on. 
we've considered this before, but I want to show you just a little bit how specific it is. Even the language is such that the Israelites, as they came out of Egypt, should have remembered this story and the lessons. I'm going to say that again. The Israelites, as they came out of Egypt, should have remembered this story, and this story would have been instructed to them if they had paid attention to it. That's always true in the Bible. At every point in the Bible history, all the stuff that came before is instructed to the people at that slot in time. And it's using a very specific way. We go to Exodus chapter 1, we'll find exactly the same language used for their multiplication in the land. In chapter 1, verse 9, Pharaoh says, Behold, this people, the children of Israel, is many more and mightier in number. Got that in parenthesis because it's the same word. Mightier than we. That's exactly what Abimelech said. So, we have fruitfulness, multiplication, becoming great and stronger and mighty in number here in Genesis 26. And it's going to happen again when you go down to Egypt. Gerar is like Egypt. Going down into Egypt is like going to Gerar. The same thing happens. Jacob multiplies and becomes great. And then there's strife and difficulty. The Philistines envy them. They fight with him. Abimelech says, go away because you're mightier. I just written you about being mightier in number. Verse 7 of Exodus 1, the children of Israel bore fruit. They swarmed. They became many. They grew mighty in number. Exceedingly. Yes, exceedingly. And the land was filled with them. And when we did Exodus eons ago, I tell you there's seven things there. They bore fruit. They swarmed. They became many. They grew mighty in number. Exceedingly. Exceedingly. The land was filled. It piles up. Just as it piles up here. The same rhetorical device. And anybody reading this would say, oh yeah, this has already happened once. With Isaac, yeah, that's what happened. They swarmed. They became mighty. They became mighty in number. And then Abimelech becomes concerned about that. Well, well, you know, Pharaoh becomes concerned about that. And he tells them to leave. Verse 20 also says, God dealt well with the midwives and people became many and grew exceedingly mighty in number. Reiterated three times this exceedingly mighty in number in Exodus 1. Fulfilling what's here. Same thing happens. Well then, we go out into the wilderness. They leave Gerar. Still had your map from last week. No need to look at it. I'll catch it up here. Here we are. Egypt. Gerar. There she was over here. We're leaving Gerar, and we're going out into the Wadi on the way to Beersheba. That's your Exodus route. Later on, we leave Egypt. They go out at the Sinai Peninsula on the way to the Promised Land. Here is the miniature Exodus. We leave Gerar to the Wadi, which is a wilderness. It's a dry place. On our way to Beersheba, which is the ancient land where Abraham was for many years. It's where Isaac grew up. When Isaac gets to Beersheba, he's returned home. So, when he grew up in Beersheba, he moved to Bear Lahiroi, he moved to Gerar, he comes into the Wadi in the wilderness and returns to Beersheba. That's a microcosm. The macrocosm is the children of Israel living in the promised land. They go down to Egypt, they go into the wilderness, they come back into the promised so this is a little microcosm exodus here. And when we go into the Wadi, 
We're going into the wilderness. We're in any wells and have to dig for it. Well, what happens when you get out of Egypt? Well, there's all this problem with water. Strike. Here the Philistines fight them over the water. Here the people fight with God over water at Marathon. Exodus chapter 17. And it happens several other times. They're fighting over water and they're digging wells. Remember that verse in Numbers where it says they found the well and they sang a song. Here, well, sing to it, sing up with water. Over in the book of Numbers. Several times in the story we have coming to wells, digging wells. Then, the next thing that it says here in the passage after it tells us that they go into the wilderness is the mention of Abraham's well. Well, the next thing that happens in the later story is you come to Mount Sinai and you get the law. I said to you last week that there's a reason why this passage emphasizes Abraham keeping the law. The only time it's said, and it's kind of odd, back in verse 5, Abraham hearkened to my voice. That's the end of the quotation from chapter 22, remember. Then it says, and keeping my charge, my commandments, my laws, and my instructions. Your Bible may have my statutes and my ordinances. That's not language that's found in Genesis. That's the language of Mount Sinai. But it's stuck back here to say that Abraham had the same general content. And it's also because this passage is typological. The Hebrews reading this passage in Egypt as the plagues are coming down, from they had this book. As things are happening, they're supposed to learn from this. Okay, God gave Abraham a law. And as they read this story, and they see that it's happening again, we're in the wilderness, have a reference to Abraham, Abraham's legacy, which is keeping all the commandments. And here we are on Mount Sinai, and we're being given commandments. Then the next thing that happens in this passage is, the theme of the wadi comes back and finding a well, verse 19. After Sinai, we're going to be in the wilderness for a few more months on our way to the promised land. Of course, because of sin, those few months become 40 years. But originally, they were just going to be a few months. Then we have strife with the shepherds. Over where we find the well. That corresponds to the conquest of the promised land. We're fighting with the original owners of the land over who gets the well. Finally, we come to a well that is fruitful and we have faith in it and that's the occupation in the land. As it happens later on. And then we come to Beersheba. This story with Isaac is a shadow, just a shadow, not highly specific, but the shadowy prophetic foretelling of the larger story that's to come. And if you are in the wilderness, then this should be part of the what the loop you're thinking. You know, we have this big Bible and here this book I have here looks pretty fast. This is just the first five books. If we had the whole Bible this way, we'd have ten books this size stacked up over here. Our Bible's a small print exceedingly thin pages. They're not done like regular books. You publish the Bible the way a regular book is published, and it would have to be several volumes. It's a lot. And the only Bible they had at the time of the Exodus was the book of Genesis. Joseph or somebody at that time got it all finished up. They'd been studying it and reading it while they were in captivity. They're supposed to have been anyway. And they should have had these Exodus stories so much in mind. Pharaoh attacking Abraham in Egypt. And God sending plagues on Pharaoh and Abraham coming out with spoil and then getting into the promised land and Lot separating from him and then God making a covenant with him. And then Abraham going down to Gerar with the Bimelech and there's an attack on the women there. But then God 
appears to Abimelech in a dream. And Abraham is sent out by Abimelech and comes out and prospers. And then Isaac goes down, the story we're looking at. And then Jacob, he goes into a foreign land. While he's there, he's oppressed. And then he escapes with lots of spoil and he comes back into the promised land. The story happens over and over and over again. So if you're an Israelite at the time of the Exodus, you have supposed to know that story in all of its various forms, by heart, so that when you start going through the wilderness, you don't say, hey, let's go back to Egypt. Because you remember that Abraham didn't do that, I didn't do that, Jacob didn't do that. No, they kept going and found blessings. Uh, they happen over and over again in greater and greater, wider forms. For instance, this whole Exodus story, we have this little itty-bitty Exodus story the first time it happened in chapter 11. I'll probably point this out, but let me just read it. I mean, this is just the initial miniature Exodus story. These are the beginnings of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Mahor, and Haran. And Haran begat Lot, and Haran died in the presence of Terah in the land of Ur. So part of the old generation dies off there. Abram and Nahor took wives. Abram's wife was Sarah. Sarai, Nahor's wife was Milcah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. We're living in the old place in Ur of the Chaldees. Our wives are barren. Our sons are dying. Terah takes Abram his son and Lot, son of Haran his son, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, wife of Abram his son. They went out from Ur to go to the land of Canaan, but when they come as far as Haran, they settle there. So you go into a wilderness area, and you settle there. And the days of Terah were five years and 200 years, and Terah died at Haran, and then Abraham moves into the promised land. So what we have here? We got a bad situation in the pagan land where there's a bunch of death. Your sons die, your wife's barren. You come out, but you just kind of stay in the wilderness until the older generation dies off, then you move into the promised land. Now that is the miniature first exodus that you have. And then you have a bigger one in the very next chapter where we go to Egypt. Then you get bigger ones and bigger ones. After this happens about seven or eight times, you get to the story of David. And David's story is a very long, complex form of the same thing. Only it's Saul who is Pharaoh. And he's got the land under duress. And David is gradually getting all the stuff from him. And David is multiplying. David's got 10,000 where Saul's only got thousands. And so David is driven out into the wilderness. And while he's in the wilderness, he's got a mixed multitude with him. People come from all these nations round about. Guys like Uriah the Hittite. And while he's in the wilderness, Pharaoh's pursuing him. Saul goes after him twice. While he's in the wilderness, other things are happening. He gets wise. He gets wells of water. Then he comes back. But the story is greatly expanded. All these things are added in. And the story gets expanded again. In the book of Esther is another Exodus story. You got a midnight Passover thing where the king in the middle of the night sees what's happening and changes everything. Then we get to the gospel narratives. They're so rich and full and complex. So we don't even perceive that it's the same as this little itty-bitty story we just read. Only all these various versions of it have culminated to where the gospel narrative is so rich and full it's almost hard to see the outline anymore until Jesus, on the Mount of Transfiguration, says, I'm about to make an exodus in Jerusalem. And they say, wait a minute. <laughs> we already had 20 exoduses in the Old Testament and it all piles up to you. So, yeah, that's right. And that's the true way to do typology. Typology is not 
this little itty bitty thing here is a snapshot of this little itty bitty thing about Jesus. It's looking at these large pattern structures and how they're fulfilled culminatively. So, we have this story. This is a story, it's the same multi-told tale, and there's specific things about the way the story is told that anticipates the situation of Israel later on in their exodus. The second general observation I want to make is, I've already done this in this lecture, there's a general parallel to verses 7 to 11. Rebecca was found at a well. Rebecca is a well. Women are wells of water. The water that comes from a woman is her children. There are parallels there, deep structure, conceptual parallels that I think are also involved in this story, that the potential conflict over Rebecca is parallel to the actual conflict over these wells of water. They all have to do with fruitfulness. And God's promise to Abraham that I will multiply you and I'll give you all that you get. You'll have lots of children and so forth, and he actually only has two and he never has any more. That's parallel to digging these wells and having lots of water. So there's a conceptual parallel there that we don't want to fail to see and let it kind of become part of the way we look at the world. And then the word the well appears seven times in this passage in the overall chapter. Actually, it occurs eight times, but the seventh is referring to the same well in verse 15. Well, which his father had dug in the days of Abraham. Verse 18, Isaac had again dug up the wells of water. Verse 19, Isaac's servants found a well. Verse 20, they call that well bickering. Verse 21, they dug another well and called it Satan. Verse 22, went off from there and dug another well and called it open spaces. And then climax, that's it. The climax of the story is the next section where they dig the well at Beersheba and open it up again. Verse 25, his servants excavated a well, and then in verse 32, they told him about the well and said they found water. So it's not just that wells come up repeatedly, but that there's a very common biblical numerological structure to how it comes up. Six wells and then a seventh, which is also an eighth in the way it's set out. An important theme to discuss it has to do with the coming of the Holy Spirit as a result of the work of the Son, ultimately. Verses 12 to 15, I want to read it again. Well, I've already done this. We saw that God gives them a hundredfold, and verse 12, Yahweh blessed him. Then there's the sevenfold greatness, and the Philistines envied it. And that's the rhythm of the text. Isaac sowed, reaped a hundred, Yahweh blessed him. Isaac became great, greater, 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 Philistines envied and then, in verse 15, it says, The wells his father's servants had done in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines, stopped up and filled with purse. That tells us that Abraham had more than one well in Gerar. While he's there, there's a reference to one of those wells, and we will be looking at this passage in more detail. Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seen. That turns out to be the Beersheba well. But it says that Abimelech had lots of wells, and I suspect that Abraham had lots of wells in this area. I suspect he had seven of them for reasons that we'll get to. And then in verse 16, we have the Exodus. The conflict here in Egypt and Gerar, Abimelech sends them out, throw away the country, too mighty for it, and he camps in a wadi. Your Bible may say valley, but it's not a valley. The word wadi kind of 
jumps out at you. It's not an English word. It's not the kind of word that exists in English, but there's no other word for it. You know what a wadi is? It is a, that's what it is. It's a dry riverbed that only has water in it when there's a lot of rain. A river used to be here. Maybe it rains a lot. There'll be some water in it again, but ordinarily it's dry. It's a dry riverbed that only has water occasionally. So, if you want water, if you want to dig a well, you could dig there because that's where water has gone in the past. It's the lowest area in this part of the topography, so that's where you would dig. But that's what a wadi is. It's a dry riverbed flowing downhill from high ground. And that's where we are in a dry place. It's equivalent to the wilderness. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.